Hello and welcome to Black Magic Treehouse, the podcast where we take a look at the books from our childhood that made our blood turn cold. That was my blood turning cold. Sounds like you're all ready to hear about the book this week, which you don't know about, but the listener will because it'll be in the episode title. Oh, man, this is... It's a little too meta for me starting off the show like this. I don't know how I can proceed. The, oh, the, that's the word. Dramatic irony. That's when the audience knows something that the characters in the drama do not. So we got Huckleberry some... Finn is the classic example. I remember of that from my <laughs> I think uh, I think the, I learned that phrase in the same manner. Huh. Look at that. So many things in common. Who the hell are we anyway? Well, my name is Eric, your intrepid host. I'm not intrepid. Uh, and you are? And I am Jose, the intrepider host. Reporters are usually, in old-timey stuff, described as intrepid. So. Yeah, well, I guess they would have to be, you know. But we were all intrepid before cell phones. Now we're just intrepid for the uh, social media clicks, I guess. So we yeah. can take selfies there. Wow. Anyway, let's not talk about social media. Uh, how, how are you doing, Jose? This is off to a great start. <laughs> let me tell you. Let me tell you something about you know, the modern world, Eric. You know, we were uh-huh. just referencing cell phones and social media. Do you know what else is super modern? Artificial intelligence. And do you know a movie that just came out recently that was all about artificial intelligence is Megan. Have you seen Megan? Do you know M3-gan. her? M. Thregan, yeah. That's right, M. Thregan. That's her. We discovered, right? uh, not to pull back the curtain, we just discovered prior to recording that we were watching this movie at the exact same time last night. Super creepy. Talk about, S- yeah. Staring up at the same moon. Yes, exactly. Uh, much like Megan herself, who's in sync with all the technology around her. Everything she touches turns evil it seems uh not to give too much away about the movie but we're going to do that anyway because we uh we're going to talk about it a little bit um i and i know our proclivity is to like a spouse thesis papers on uh on the movies we talk about so i'm gonna do my best to keep it pretty succinct and i will just offer up the statement that i think megan m Thregan, um fun popcorn movie and especially after it wrapped and i took it all in the thing that struck me the most about it was um first of all i have no idea what the actual rating was that the movie got did you watch the uh, unrated version on peacock oh well i watched the version on peacock but i wasn't aware that there was an unrated version very interesting um i feel like the version that i watched was not unrated uh, because the thing that struck me was how pretty um, bloodless, both in the literal and the metaphorical sense, and that um, it was kind of a it was kind of low on terror. I felt like it was um, I, f- I thought it was the kind of a perfect movie to watch during a sleepover if uh, you were a preteen. That was a it, it's a good gateway horror movie to kind of give you the creepies especially with all the uncanny valley stuff um and you know there's a little bit of mutilation in there but but not much nothing that'll make you 
lose your lunch or anything. So I felt like it was a, a nice, clean, scary sleepover movie. But now I'm wondering, oh, goodness, did I watch the rated version? And is there some even more horrific version out there that I somehow missed? Yeah, we watched the unrated one. I can't really compare. It was, st- I think the original was PG-13. Um, but the unrated version, you could tell that they were kind of, in the way that they shot it, probably aiming for PG-13. Because hmm. there's, as far as I can recall, there wasn't really any like swearing or at least no F-bombs. And the only scene that got a little bit graphic was when they, you know, she attacks the bully kid at the school that yeah. part. and uh, <laughs> she she uh well spoilers she just yanks his ear right off his head <laughs> yeah okay that was the unrated version uh yep wow okay so that's the version i saw and yeah it's or at the- least again i don't i can't compare because hmm. i i only saw the one but they had a close-up of his ear coming off of his head and that was the only moment of like actual gore that they showed that was longer than like two frames so yeah i'm assuming that would be like what the difference was well by an ear that's the difference between a rated and an unrated movie it seems huh yeah like like shakespeare said by an ear (laughs) a buccaneer yeah we all know the rest Uh, yep (laughs) (laughs) oh wow so yeah that's that's kind of surprising i guess maybe in some ways it shouldn't be surprising i'm not I, speaking for myself anyway, I'm not hep exactly to the whole differentiation between rated and unrated. Is there ever a difference? Because usually the movies that those two uh, descriptors apply to are more modern films. And me being the uh, curmudgeonly old ostrich that I am uh, with my head down in the sands of time, um, that stuff just kind of flies right past me. I'm, I don't watch a whole lot of modern horror movies, and so those two those two uh, classifications really don't mean much to me. I, I have no knowledge of them and, and how true uh, they are. So that's kind of a surprise about Megan, though. Yeah, well, back in the days of um, physical media, it was kind <laughs> of just like a marketing ploy to sell more DVDs, like when they would release Charlie you know, Charlie's Angels full throttle, uncut or whatever. Like they would put it on there to make you think like, oh, they're all going to be naked or something. <laughs> but really what they would do is they would just throw in like three extra seconds of footage that are not even R-rated just so they can say like, technically, this is not the version we submitted to the MPAA. I think that's true. And it would seem in this particular case anyway, that uh, that probably holds true for Megan because it, uh, it was a tame horror film uh, by my estimation in a way that I was actually pretty happy about it could have and I guess when you think about it when you think back to um like say the original uh child's play trilogy that those were pretty tame horror films um you know a lot of the the bodily damage that was inflicted uh especially towards the end was on the doll itself you know chucky ends up in the fireplace and you know he stabbed oh so many times same thing kind of happens to megan spoiler alert so and and i did kind of enjoy the moment where there there's almost kind of a nod maybe consciously subconsciously to the first terminator movie um when just when you think the robot is down for the count oh no look 
she's back um, before the final blow was finally delivered. So I was having flashes to uh, Linda Hamilton in those final moments of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's it's kind of a dumb movie. Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> there are you know pretty gaping you know holes in the plot. Uh, just the kind of hilarity of this super advanced, super groundbreaking robot being designed by three people <laughs> secretly and just the the mad rush to get this thing into production, you know, because the, the you know, the higher ups, they're just so emotionally amazed and wowed by this creation. And there's not one lick of concern for safety or, you know, long-term effects that this groundbreaking toy may have on, you know, the world. They're just like, oh, this is a great toy. We just got to start making this thing. (laughs) It's just, you know, the kind of Hollywood contrivances that's like, oh, okay, well, this plot's got to keep moving one way or the other, so who cares about logic? Um, So I think that also plays into it being the perfect sleepover movie because when you're a preteen, you don't care about that kind of stuff. You just want to see the creepy doll do creepy things. Well, not to argue with you, honey. <laughs> um, I actually thought that the movie had some surprisingly interesting stuff going on uh, thematically, because that's you know we have all these conversations now about AI art, AI photography. I just saw a post earlier today actually about a guy who got in trouble because he built up a big following on Instagram with his photography of like portraits. And then revealed that they were all AI generated mm. uh, and people were upset because he wasn't upfront about that. And um, I thought it was interesting that they, again, it's not like this is like a deep movie, but <laughs> it, it touches on some stuff about, you know, where the child therapist is saying, like, you're not really reckoning with the idea that, like, this girl is forming deep attachments to this AI, what you keep calling a toy, and it's going to be really difficult to, you know, even if you can unplug the AI from the power source, can you unplug the person from the AI Mm. uh, dependence that we've built up, which is uh, not to sound like an Elon Musk alarmist, because I don't, I'm not the sort of person who's like, what if AI decides that killing people is easier than making paperclips or whatever that weird (laughs) dilemma is, but... (laughs) I think the real danger is not AI turning on us. To me, it's more about like becoming so disconnected from the world because it's just easier to program this thing to be all of these social needs that you have to fulfill. Uh, And is that ultimately going to have some kind of deleterious effect on the human race and our ability to connect with each other? Yeah, I do agree with you, actually, Um, despite my points that I think it's kind of a dumb movie in certain (laughs) aspects of the the narrative or rush just for the sake of convenience Um, that those were actually some of my favorite parts of the movie, especially with how it uh, technology relates to parenting and raising a child, you know, it, it starts from the very beginning of the movie where you know the child is playing on the tablet and the parents are having an argument about well she's spending a lot of time she's you know not she's interacting with the toy through the tablet it seems kind of you know silly 
that it should come to this. Well, you know, how else do you want her to behave and so on and so forth. Um, and that, you know, that first scene, especially, and many of the others to come, those really do ring true because those are conversations we're having right now. Um, yeah, especially, know. I mean, you're a parent, I'm not, I don't have kids. So this is, you know, there's a million things every day. I mean, not mm -hmm. to rub it in your face or whatever, but... <laughs> There are so many things where I'm like, I'm glad I don't have to figure out how to talk to my kids about, you know, X, Y, Z. And one of them is like, yeah, how do you try to maintain some kind of, you know, normal go outside and I don't want to say touch grass, but <laughs> how do you maintain some kind of connection with the world that isn't completely dependent on the things that your kid probably would gravitate towards? because we're always sort of drawn to the things that are easier rather than the things that are more fulfilling. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, limiting screen time, um, limiting video game time, you know, is like, ugh, I don't know. How do you handle <laughs> that stuff today? But I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I will say that those are things that I have to deal with in my day to day, uh, especially with my daughter who's five years old. Uh, I'm, mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting because when I was a kid, and of course this was pre tablet pre all of this stuff um i was a heavy tv viewer um from a pretty young age but especially into my middle adolescence uh into my late adolescence um you know i was constantly watching tv shows and movies i was you know, I, I remember summers where i would uh, anxiously await to go down the street to get the sunday paper uh, because the Sunday paper was the one that had the TV guide for the week. And what I would do is I'd look through the TV guide and I would use a pen to circle out a schedule for myself. Like, okay, let's see what all the good stuff on TV is. All right, so in the morning I'll be watching this. In the afternoon I'll be watching this. So, um, yeah, I didn't get out that much uh, back in those days. And uh, it showed in more ways than one. In some yeah, it's part funny that the TV yeah. guide maintained this continued to be a thing even after the internet. Like we had the internet in my house for several years while also still getting a TV guide, <laughs> and because I had the same ritual. Wow! Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to clarify that, like, I'm not. I always feel self-conscious about sounding like the old out of touch guy who's like, ah, these kids today. I'm not. I'm not trying to uh, look down on kids using technology. I'm not the kind of person who <clears throat> sees a bunch of teens, you know, hanging out in a restaurant, not bothering anybody, being on their phones. I'm like, I don't get mad about that. I don't know. There are just certain things that that worry me about technology, and I hope they are baseless fears that we figure out how to deal with. <laughs> when it comes to my daughter, uh, I am very aware uh, of how much screen time she's getting, and I'm the parent who's like, okay, she's been watching this for a while, or she's been, you know, uh, playing with the, and she doesn't play that much with the tablet. It's really just the TV. And, you know, I'll say, okay, after this episode, you know, we're turning it off. And, you know, sometimes she throws a bigger fit than others. Um, but, you know, she acts, you know, in any case, she asks me why. And I'm like, you've been watching it all day. Like, I'm, like, I'm getting antsy just because, it's been the TV from the second you've gotten home or the second you've woken up. It's like, we need to get outside and do something. Which, again, is funny because when I was a kid and her age and older, that was not me at all. Um, 
So, yeah, I still have I still have trouble sometimes as an adult making myself go accomplish something outdoors. I walked to the DMV today, which is like <laughs> about a 25 minute walk from where I live, and I was like, all right, I sure accomplished something. Yeah, walking to the DMV, I feel like that's I feel like you're making a statement. You might you might have just uh, participated in a protest. Yeah, that's true. It was mainly because we live in kind of a downtown area and there's not always parking available the places uh, you need to go to. But it was also partially just that it was a nice, you know, 50 something degree day. Uh, yeah. But we should probably move on from Megan because we've been talking about it for a while. But real quick, I do want to say that the screenwriter, I don't have her name off the top of my head, um, but the woman who wrote the screenplay, I believe, also writes a lot of screenplays for uh, James Wan, like she wrote Malignant and all that. Oh, okay. I noticed and, he had a co-screenwriting credit, I think. Oh, did he? Yeah, he probably came up with the story, I think. Um, but, I, I, again, I also don't remember who directed this movie. But one of the things that can frustrate me about James Wan is that I feel like he often works from a screenplay that is very potentially quite campy and mm. i can't i legitimately cannot tell when i'm watching something like malignant like i have no idea if james wan wants me to laugh at this or legitimately <laughs> be terrified because there's just so much absolutely ridiculous stuff in his movies uh and i thought megan was it better embraced sort of mm. the, the campiness of it and it allowed itself to be funny yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Um, and I had not, I have not seen *Malignant* myself. My friend who came over to watch *Megan* with us had just seen *Malignant*, and yeah, she definitely fell into the camp of. Uh, I don't. She didn't profess to know whether or not the filmmakers intended to be ridiculous, but she's like that movie was absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> and, yeah, it was a really divisive movie when it came out because some people were like acting like it was like the greatest horror movie in the past 20 years and some people were like that was stupid yeah yeah and i I'm think i was somewhere in the middle so jose let me ask you this okay i know that you have said before that you generally skipped the ya horror phase uh yeah i i kind of avoided ya just because I was so, um, I guess you could say, stunted in my development that I didn't want to give up the icky ghosts and monsters that uh, juvenile horror kind of traded in. And I didn't want to trade it in for like murderers and creeps lurking around like that. That wasn't quite my vibe. So I kind of steered clear of YA horror altogether. Well, are you aware of who the the second person <laughs> that you know of in YA horror, if you know of R.L. Stein? I assume you're referring to Christopher Pike, if that is his real name. Uh, it is not. I think it's like oh. Kevin, Kevin something. But anyway. Yeah, there's a funny connection between the two of them. I mean, apart from the fact that they're, they both did... Uh, horror in the late 80s into the late 90s. So R.L. Stein always tells a story about how he did not come up with the idea for Fear Street. It was an editor that he was having lunch with who came in really frazzled and frustrated because she had just been dealing with Christopher Pike. And she was like, I don't want to deal with Christopher Pike anymore. Can you write a YA horror series? And R.L. Stein was like, uh, yeah, I guess I could. And that's how Fear Street was born. Wow, I didn't 
I, I think I have heard that uh, that anecdote before, but rehearing it um, still delights me. <laughs> yeah, he used to tell it in such a way where he would not reveal what author the editor was frustrated with. But mm. then <clears throat> last year I watched a Zoom chat between him and um, Victoria Schwab because they both had new books coming out. And it was just like a private thing. So I think he felt more comfortable being like, uh, it was Christopher Pike. <laughs> but he I may have also the... said it publicly too, I don't know. Yeah, I wonder what the source of the frustration. I, Having read a couple of Christopher Pike books in uh, recent memory, I bet it's that he just has a complex about thinking he's smarter than everybody else and probably would not take any advice from the editor about how to change his book. You know what I mean? I can probably see that. Again, I've, I've never really read him. Because there's this vibe that I always get from him where it's like he's self-deprecating, but in a way that I feel like he thought it was charming to be self-deprecating, but also he kind of meant it like I'm superior to everybody else. <laughs> I hope like he doesn't guy. listen to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> we are in trouble. I'm sure he's better now. I think he was like a young guy who got really famous writing these books. And it maybe went to his head a little bit. It could happen to any of us. True but let that. me read you the about the author section in this book that I read for the podcast today. Okay. Um, about the author. Little is known about Christopher Pike, although he is, he is supposed to be a strange man. It is rumored that he was born in New York, but grew up in Los Angeles. He has been seen in Santa Barbara lately, so he probably lives there now. But no one really knows what he looks like or how old he is. It is possible that he is not a real person, but an eccentric creature visiting from another world. When he is not writing, he sits and stares at the walls of his huge haunted house. A short, ugly troll wanders around him in the dark and whispers scary stories in his ear. In his ear. Christopher Pike is one of this planet's best-selling authors of young adult fiction. So in other words, kids, F you. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know... You see why I get this feeling sometimes. That is, and he also, um, the legend is that he got kind of talked into writing YA horror because it was popular when what he really wanted to do was write adult science fiction novels. Uh, and that comes across in his work because a lot of it does seem to have some amount of contempt for his audience. <laughs> <laughs> and he does a lot of sci-fi concepts kind of redisguised as horror. Like today's book, Spooksville number five, the cold people. Spooksville. I do recall checking uh, one or two of these out from my public library when I was a kid. Yes. Uh, did you? Uh, so you read them? I remember attempting to read one, um, and it was well. Two things. One of them was, I guess, I was such a baby and in the sense that I liked what I liked and anything that uh, deterred from that formula, I was just like, no, I don't want it. Um, so in the sense that Spooksville was a series of, you know, uh, horrific chapter books written for kids. And even though they had the look of say like a Goosebumps series, it was a interconnected storyline uh it was the mm -hmm. same kids in the same town just kind of encountering different spooky stuff in each book um but it had like an overarching narrative i remember something about like oh spooksville was the site of 
an infamous witch and you know her her curse and her power still reigns over the land and that's why occasionally we meet aliens sometimes so that kind of bummed me out in the it's funny that of- you say that because that <laughs> sentence you just said is basically exactly the like previously on uh paragraph at the beginning of the cold people <laughs> oh, good to know um, i wrote it down verbatim it said the town was freezing this is like I don't think it's the first line of the book, but it's like the with on the first page. The town was freezing and it was summer still. The cold weather was as strange as the boiling temperatures a couple of weeks earlier when Adam Freeman and his friends had run into aliens. Wow, yeah. So that that seems like it holds up to my memories pretty well. And um, yeah, not to give too much away of the the book that you're going to be discussing, but I remember just not. Um, just not being hep to the writing style, it felt very dry to me. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and in ways that even R.L. Stein uh, was usually not as dry. And I'm I'm wondering again, not to forecast too much into what we're going to be talking about. I can't help but wonder if whatever hypothetical contempt. Uh, Christopher Pike might have had for writing to a YA audience. I wonder if perhaps it was a little magnified when he was tapped to write for an even younger audience uh, with this series. Well, I'll tell you, it just may have. <laughs> Let's um, find out. But I sent you the uh, the cover and the teaser through the chat if you want to take a look at the cover and tell people uh, what it looks like there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is cool okay so we got christopher pike's name up there at top where it usually is because he's the greatest uh, gift to writing since uh james joyce uh spooksville is underneath the the series name and it's got an appropriately creepy font just looking at it even though it's a a scanned two-dimensional image just the way that spooksville is uh formatted that the title it's got that kind of jagged look is that a die cut or the letters die cut or i don't uh, even know if that's the right yeah. the right phrase are they bumpy <laughs> they're uh embossed or beveled i forget which one oh, okay. means they're raised up yeah yeah we're we're re- really good at our b- book terminology <laughs> as you can see here die cut is definitely not the right word i'm just now realizing i sounded like a complete idiot but let's move on oh i was um, assuming it was one of your insider librarian terms well, in a sense, it is, because when you die cut, that's basically when you just it's it's a hole puncher in the shape of letters that you do for like bulletin boards, which is the complete opposite of the thing that we're talking about right now. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, but I people if people uh, read Goosebumps, they remember that those were raised up. So, yeah, they know so, what we're talking about. But also, yeah. I don't think that um, R.L. Stein's name on those books was also embossed. Not oh. so with Christopher Pike. Look at that star treatment for the star author. Uh, so embossed. Yeah, do you think Pike that was letters. a contractual thing? No, nah, I don't know. I guess it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> but uh, for the image itself, uh, the book is called The Cold People, as Eric said. So we have a boy who I assume is the recurring hero. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just some random dude who lives in Spooksville. Uh, he's peering out what I assume is his uh, his the back door of his house. It's got that kind of little curtain in it that, you know, you pull up when you want to peek outside, see what the squirrels are up to 
in the backyard. So he's peeking out of uh, his door there, and there is a claw made of ice on the other side of the door. Oh, I guess this must be his front door, because I'm just now realizing that the claw is apparently pressing the doorbell. So that's kind of a weird, well, I guess maybe it's a kind of a, a rural house. I was just thinking that's kind of a weird front door to have, um, but maybe not so in Spooksville. So anyway, kid's looking out of his door, the little window of his door there. There's an icy claw pressing the doorbell, uh, and it's just freezing everything it touches. The doorbell's kind of cold. The thermometer on the wall is just busted. The mercury's all the way down to the very bottom, of course. There's a Okay, so yeah, again, I'm wondering, is this the front door? What's going on here? Because there's a hose <laughs> right next mm-hmm. to this door, which you don't usually see on front doors, at least not in the non-Spooksville place that I live. Um, and it looks like the water trickling out of the hose is also frozen solid. And it's kind of cute because um, the boy who's looking out his window is screaming because, uh, of course, that's what you would do if you, I guess, saw one of the cold people uh ringing your doorbell but there's some frost on the corner of the window that he's peeking out of and just the way that he's screaming and the way his head is positioned it almost kind of looks like he's uh enjoying a nice icy treat and is licking (laughs) licking the accumulated frost in the corner of his window um but yeah that's the cover of the cold people as i live and breathe and this is all borne out by the uh hag line which is their touch was like ice Ooh. Yeah, it's funny that you say that about the boy. Uh, first of all, he does not look like the characters on any of the other covers that I've seen. Um, hmm. So I don't think he's recurring. But also, I feel like this was kind of the era when characters didn't always look the same from cover to cover, even if they were supposed to be the same character. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That could be That's it. That's absolutely right. uh, Yeah. And he also <laughs> looks like, it's funny because this cover is painted, but this boy looks like he's in the pose of screaming that kids get on, like, are you afraid of the dark when they're, like, just <laughs> just screaming, but they're not thinking about the fact that it's like, oh, I also have to act like I'm afraid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like weird uh, yeah. kid acting in painting form. Well, the artist really translated that look accurately. <laughs> yeah, there must have been, like, a, a reference photo or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then the back, I'll go ahead and read you the teaser on the back, which has another character on it with um, glasses. And he's got two watches on his left arm. Oh, my God, he does. I think he might be one of the characters in the book. uh, Because, well, I'll tell you when we get to our uh, character descriptions. Mm. All right. They found them frozen in the forest. Adam and his friend are exploring the forest near Spooksville when they come across huge blocks of ice hidden in the trees. They decide to melt one of the blocks with fire. (laughs) When they do, a strange man comes out of the ice and tries to grab them. This man has very cold hands, and his eyes aren't too warm either. (laughs) Soon there are dozens of cold people running around Spooksville freezing people. It seems nothing can stop them from making everybody cold. But Adam and his friend have an idea that just might save the day or else get them turned into human popsicles. Oh, my God. So I uh, when we covered the Goosebumps book, 
in our first episode, Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, I also made this comment in a YouTube video that I promise I'll eventually shut up about, um, where I was reading the back cover copy of all the Goosebump books. And I said a few times that there really isn't art to um, kind of synopsizing the plot, but doing it in kind of a fun or alluring way um, that actually entices the reader to want to dive into the book proper. Um, this is a great testament to that fact and how uh, writing something as blandly direct as this is kind of results in uh, hilarity. <laughs> it's just bad. Uh, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> this is just, it's just bad. Do you I feel love- that the Goosebumps books do it better? Oh, yeah, much better. I, I love especially, uh, you know, the man has very cold hands and his eyes weren't too warm either. It's like, <laughs> it, does that really matter? Are, are kids wondering, okay, well, his hands were cold, but tell me something about his eyes. It's like, uh, you know, somebody just sped read this book and they're like, oh, they, that's just something that they picked up on. You know what? I'll include that in the synopsis. Why not? But it has no bearing on anything and it's it's just a weird detail to include yeah it's a little they were going for like an artistic turn of phrase i think yeah didn't work <laughs> well if that synopsis grabbed you like it did me watch out for christopher pike's spooksville number six the witch's revenge mm, stay tuned so i have to ask Spooksville is the actual is Spooksville is the actual name of the town. That's like when you drive in, it says Spooksville population 666. Like, is that the official name of this place? Um, I honestly thought that it was because they don't mention the real name of the place for like 60 pages. Uh, like at one point they meet. Well, I'll tell you more about him as we get into it. But at one point they meet a guy who used to be the mayor. And they say the mayor of Spooksville. So I was like, is that the town's official name? But then at some point, they actually dropped the fact that Spooksville is actually Springville. Uh, Naturally, Springville, your typical middle American town, beset (laughs) by a witch's curse. (laughs) Um, Did that, did you have anything like that in your hometown growing up where like all the kids just kind of like unconsciously agreed to call something by, you know, a clever name, like a restaurant or something. It just kind of happens a lot in books aimed at kids where there will be a place called a certain thing or a proprietor of a shop whose last name rhymes with this other thing that happens to describe their personality. You know what I mean? I wish I could think of an example. Uh, sure no no i get the vibe of what you're saying though um i want to say if there was i can't remember it nothing that we would say oh yeah the mayor of spooksville i I don't think we had anything like that yeah i I don't remember anything it was just another one of those things that i'm i'm always um curious about things that are like is this just a thing that exists in fiction or do people actually do this thing to me, that that kind of comes across as a thing that like only exists in fiction, but I'm always open to be wrong. Email us at uh, blackmagictreehousepod at gmail.com if you yes. have any examples from your growing up days. Yeah. Did you give people places, things, nicknames? Was it like a thing, you know, amongst you and your friends or even the adults in, 
in your community, let us know. We're dying to find out. Um, but first of all, I haven't read any of the, I have a couple of uh, Strange Matter books, which was another, hmm. you know, post Goosebumps children's horror series. I haven't read it yet, but I did take a look inside of it. And it and Spooksville share the thing where it has that very Goosebumps influence um, numbering of chapters in a crazy uh, spooky font. Mm. Um, yeah. Maybe I should also post that on Instagram. I don't know if it's worth it or not. But it's mm. like the number. The numbers are like. I'm assuming this is what they look like in all of them, and not just because this is about the cold people. But it looks <laughs> like the numbers are shivering. I like it. Yeah, man, what a what a task that would be. Okay, this is a book about the cold people. We need to make the numbers look all shivery. Okay, <laughs> this is a book about the werewolf people. We need to make the numbers look all hairy. Okay, this. <laughs> yeah, I I would. Man, that would be really fun if they did that for every entry. Right, I would want that job. If any of you are hiring out there, I'm your man. All right, so let me tell you about this book. So we have our gang. There's a gang of four children. And they're doing the usual, which is consuming milk and donuts at the local bakery. But the twist is they're also drinking coffee because it is unseasonably cold. Mm, Got to stay warm. Die out there. It's summer vacation, but the temperatures <gasps> have plunged to the 20s. Fahrenheit, I should say. Mm, normal so far. What do you think is going on, gang? Well, we'll find out shortly. So I'll tell you our cast of characters here. Um, we have Adam Freeman, Sally Wilcox, Cindy Makey, and Watch. That wouldn't happen to be our young fella from the back cover who wears two watches, would it? Does that give it away? He actually wears four watches. Oh, damn. His other arm wasn't on the back cover. How was I supposed to know that? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if they're supposed to all be on one arm in the book or if they are, if he's like double, double wristing it, uh, <laughs> so to speak. But based on their names, would you like to guess what uh, archetypes they fulfill? I'll give them about, to you again. Yeah, I was going to say, I've already forgotten them. <laughs> yeah, they are pretty forgettable. Uh, so there's Adam Freeman. Okay. Oh, we're going one by one? Okay, uh, Adam Freeman, strong, heroic type, Adam the first man, he's the leader of the pack. Uh, yep, that's correct. All right. S Sally Wilcox. Sally Wilcox. Where do I start with Sally Wilcox? Um, perfect. Know, right? Yeah. Oh, how do you solve a problem like Sally Wilcox? Uh, perfect to a T, uh, waspy family, um she's the brains of the group like i feel like sally is probably the one who does all the library research how was that well you're sort of right because sally mm. is kind of everything oh okay uh, she's a weird amalgamation of a character who occasionally talks in very um like nerd speak from that era mm. like i wrote down one of the sentences she says early on in the book is this town is not known for standard weather patterns. So based on that, you kind of think she's going to be like the Velma, but right. she actually is that, but also uh, kind of the, gosh, I don't know. 
the Daphne? Like not not mean, but she's the one who like gives everybody a hard time. Um, she's kind of a smart aleck, you know. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> she calls out other characters on their on their stuff. Uh, yeah, she's the most kind of dynamic character, which makes me think that maybe she was the uh, the stand-in for Christopher Pike or something. And then, okay, so I, oh, and I don't know anything about any of their families because we re- literally do not see any of them in this book. Uh, there's just like a reference to one one of their families when they worry about them. Uh, next is Cindy Makey, or Mackey. It's spelled like Makey. Hmm. Cindy. Uh, so, based on what we know of... Sally now, uh, would it be wrong of me to assume that Cindy is the Daphne of the group? That is entirely correct. Hooray! Uh, We don't get any physical descriptions, so I don't know if she's supposed to be pretty or not, but I assume she is, because Mm. she doesn't really have any other discernible personality (laughs) traits. Um, Oh, and also, Adam has a crush on Cindy, and Cindy may reciprocate but we don't know. Um, Sally calls her out for pretending to reciprocate the crush to get Adam to do what she wants her to do. This isn't really confirmed or denied. Yeah. Uh, and then there's Watch, who, as we already know, wears four watches and has thick glasses. And that's all you need to know about him. That's the character. Yeah, I really, honestly, I don't know any more than that because he disappears <laughs> pretty early on in the book. Um, because I, my assumption would be that he is supposed to be the brainy, nerdy one. But also, like, all of the kids seem smart and talk above their, you know, reading level. Or, you know what I mean? Like, they're all mm. heavy, coming up with ideas that's like, I don't know if I would come up with that idea even when I was, like, 25. <laughs> yeah, super uh, precocious. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about Christopher Pike is he does tend to write smart characters whereas you know the contrast to goosebumps is they're almost impossibly dumb a lot of the time and the fact that the kid's name is watch made me think of um wheels from the burger king kids club if we all remember that you have to be defined by you know any physical accessory or dare i say uh you know necessity mm-hmm. um I just feel like that was the era of kids just having the laziest nicknames. It's like, what is that guy? He wears a hat? Call him Hat. Yeah. It's a great what name. What is that kid? He likes eating food? Call him Food. Uh, <laughs> hey, what's up? Oh, food's here. Can you imagine like if everybody had a, a Cheers-esque uh, greeting, you know, for the the lovable nickname character? Oh, what's up, everybody? Food. <laughs> Food. People get excited. Hey, the party always think... starts when food is here. <laughs> and he have a shirt that would say that. <laughs> and then party walks in and is like, "Well, what is my function then? If my nickname is party?" It's like, damn it, we met you two on two separate occasions. We didn't really think this through. You're, you're gonna have to move, party. Party's gonna have to get moved. I think food just eats party and absorbs his characteristics. <laughs> Uh, that sounds like the plot for a Spooksville novel right there. I feel <laughs> so, weird calling um, them novels. <laughs> uh, yeah. An entry, let's say. Yes, installment. Uh, so the gang decides to go hiking in the woods. Um, I don't remember why, just because they have nothing else to do, I guess. 
and they spot all of these huge blocks of ice. They are so dense that the kids can't even see through to the center, but they can make out a silhouette inside of something large and dark. Mm. And <clears throat> this being five books in, you would think that their reaction would be, maybe we should leave these alone. But watch, dumb dumb little uh, brainy guy that he is, watch insists that they thaw out a block just in case, and I quote, just in case we need a, a book plot to happen right now. Yeah, well, thank you, Watch. <laughs> that is Watch's function. Um, but this is what I'm talking about when I say that these kids all talk like they read, like, exclusively science textbooks as they start talking about, like, the freezing temperatures being lower than water and, <sighs> you know, sniffing around and, like, hmm, they smell like they could possibly be ammonia. Uh, there's just a lot of, like, talking endlessly about the things that they see before them like in this analytical way that makes no sense for 12 year olds at least not for like a group of 12 year olds all being like the same like you would think that would be one of their functions but they're kind of all like that and see i'm wondering now if this is one of the the entries that i checked out from the public library as a kid because that rang very familiar to me um mm. maybe it was this book maybe it was another one where there was just very similar talk happening but that was yeah. that was basically quit in time for me i'm like i don't give a shit what it smells like just let's keep you know keep going you know with stein you had the the kind of pulp writing propulsion to it where it's just like who gives mm -hmm. a fuck what it you know how this would actually work in the real world. Let's just skip to the monster inside this block of ice already. Well, I will say uh, the good thing about this book is we do get to meet the monsters a lot earlier than we sometimes do in a Stein book. All right. Vis-a-vis um, -vis the character's decision to thaw out one of these blocks. Thanks, Mark. And what they find is a man who uh, <laughs> is in a blue jumpsuit. Um, if this was a book for older kids, I, I assume he would have been naked. But yeah. he's in a blue jumpsuit, and they notice that he has no fingerprint. This is before he bursts out of his block. Um, they've melted it just enough to be able to make out some detail, and they say that he has no fingerprints. So they start talking about whether or not he was uh, conceived in a womb. Wow. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if I, there's a Goosebumps book that used the words womb. I'm going to tell you, there is not. Uh, so this man, this um, cold person, if you will, uh, eventually they I, the ice thins out enough that he bursts out of it, and he grabs Watch and carries him off into the woods. And uh, R.I.P. Watch, we hardly knew you. Mm. I was going to say, if he had come out naked, I really would have loved to have had a moment where he addressed the kids and said, I need your clothes, your shoes, and your motorcycle. <laughs> I understand what that's a reference to. Thank you. I'm sure others will, too. So Adam says, this is a real pickle. Let's go see our friend Bum. B-U-M Bum. Uh, I don't that's... know if you want to try and guess why that's his nickname. <laughs> I actually don't want to. <laughs> uh, well, they meet up with him. He's on a beach feeding pigeons. Oh and he seems to have a cold. And Adam thinks to himself, boy, I guess living outside all the time is not easy. Profound social commentary. <laughs> I know. I was like, I think you're maybe underselling it a little bit, Adam. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but he, he is an adult, just to clarify. He apparently he's like the um I don't know, the Giles kind of of the group or whatever, mm -hmm. in the sense that he's a good source of exposition. And he is the character I referred to earlier, who used to be the mayor of Spooksville. Uh, and then he stopped being rich. I'm assuming that's covered in another book. So prior to this book, his name was Mayor, and now his name is Bum. Yep. <laughs> They're really expediting the naming process there in Spooksville. I feel like, was this like leftovers from Christopher Pike's first draft where he's like, oh, I'll come up with a name later. And then he came around to like draft three and he's like, oh, I just don't care enough to give this person another name. And just nobody else along the line, agent, editor, came back and said, you know, these these people really do need proper names. Well, maybe that's the, maybe that's the source of the the agent's frustration from that story with R.L. Stein or the editor, excuse me. It's like this guy won't give any of his characters fucking names. Can uh -oh. you write a series for it me? Becomes explicitly. I already dropped an F bomb. You must have missed it. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, I was. I don't really care about maintaining a, a PG podcast. I just thought it was kind of funny that we seem to settle into like talking, you know, at a child appropriate level for these child books. But that well, dream is over. Anyway. Yeah, well, you know, we were previously talking about 12 year olds hooking up, Eric. So you really have to. I clarified what I meant by that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm I just was thinking when Jane. you were editing that episode, I was like, uh, I wonder if he's going to edit out the part where I say I don't mean having intercourse. I, I, I think I did, actually. I kept it. And, you know, honestly, yeah, with uh, minus the backpedaling, it sounded perfectly fine um so uh, that's yeah. that's the that's the part i took out so we're all good we sound we sound yeah, good. i i think of hooking up as like a thing that i heard as a kid more than like in college when people meant it in a sexual way so right uh, yeah that's my defense for that that's okay i sent netflix and chill to a group of teenagers uh at the public library once having no idea what that actually meant i just thought oh when you turn netflix on and you chill at the house and they just they gave me all horrified looks um, because I was essentially, you know, talking about, oh, what do you all like to do? You do like Netflix and chill. <laughs> it was actually the older teen librarian, older than me, teen librarian who took me aside after the fact. And he was like, do you know what that means? Uh, and he explained it to me. And I said to him, wow, more than the moments that my wife told me she was pregnant and everything leading up till now. No, there has not been a single moment that has convinced me more of the fact that I am somebody's father than what just happened. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I think it's possible to be a father even without having kids. Yeah. yeah. In that way. I hear you. I hear you there because I've been a father <laughs> since I was probably 13 years old. So <laughs> yeah. amen to that. Uh, so let's get some exposition, exposition from our friend Bum. So there were these two warring continents eons ago atlantis and Lemur lemuria which is oh, called wait. Mu for short um i know we've all heard of atlantis did you know have you heard of lemuria before i have not and that's probably a whole nother thing that made me tune out of this series it's like oh <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, is this supposed to be scary stories or is this like some kind of dumb, you know, fantasy saga disguised as, you know, spooky, spooky stuff? I think that's what angered me about it, is like, oh, 
what is this, you know, this this lore and, you know, the aliens and the the science talk, it just all melded together to make me not like reading these things. Sorry, I know we're not, not even to the proper plot of this first book, but I'm already upset. This is triggering a lot of things. Well, get ready, because Ugh. there is only more weird sci-fi fantasy bullshit. Great, great. And yes, yeah. I will call it bullshit since you said the F word. The gates are the gates have been opened. Going full throttle here. Uncut full throttle into Spooksville. I only asked about Lemuria because it is apparently a real theory. Oh. Uh, similar to Atlantis, you know. But it was one that I'd never heard of before. So Pike was pulling from pre-established sources here. Uh, but these two continents had a long-running relationship that sometimes would be periods of peacetime, and sometimes they would be at war with each other. Uh, and in one of their warring periods, visitors came down from a star cluster called the Pleiades, Pleiades, which is the place where apparently, I don't think it's where human life originated, but it kind of felt like there was an implication that they visited Earth, you know, long before and deposited some of their people to, like, teach aliens and you know how there's that theory about, like, aliens came down and, like, built the pyramids? The theory right. is too much credit. That hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And people often talk about, like, humans took this uh, inexplicable leap in evolution. It must be because aliens came down and mated with us. I think that's what is being uh, alluded to here. Um, mm -hmm. But they come down and visit, as they are wont to do from time to time. And different factions of the... Pleiadic people align themselves with either Atlantis or Mu, and the more underhanded side sides with Mu because they promise those people that um, if we help you wipe out Atlantis completely, then we will. It, it doesn't really make sense as a deal because they're the ones doing all the work here. Uh, if you let us wipe out Atlantis for you, then we will show you how to live for tens of thousands of years with the secrets of our cryo blood, um, which basically preserves the human body like a sandwich in the refrigerator. I'm just making the connections now with cryo blood and the cold people. I'm seeing where this is going. That's what I'm saying. Okay. I thought you were saying, like, I should have figured this out earlier. Like, oh, uh, no. No. <laughs> God, I never would have figured this out. <laughs> Only Christopher Pike has a superior enough mind to figure out where this is all going. Well, I guess we'll see about that. So then the aliens on the move side help steer an asteroid at Atlantis uh, to wipe it out. But Atlantis sees the asteroid coming, obviously knows that it's coming from Mu, and they fire all of their nuclear weapons at Mu. So these two continents both get taken out at the exact same time. And a few of the Mu-lians who have already been converted to cryo-creatures managed to escape. And then Bum says uh, they probably came to Spooksville because it's one of the last remaining pieces of Mu. But he doesn't know who brought them here in those blocks of ice. But we find out that there's a ticking clock for our friend Watch because these creatures are like vampires. They will turn him into one of them. I guess you could say there's four ticking clocks for watch. But yeah, I was going to uh, say, did you mean to say that? Because <laughs> it was quite good. <laughs> I did not mean to. Um, I'm accidentally brilliant. 
as opposed to Christopher Pike, who was intentionally going to. So Adam and Cindy, uh, Cindy insists on running to the police, even though everybody else gives her a hard time about it. But Adam has a crush on her, so he decides to go with her anyway. And Sally and Bum pair off to go buy flamethrowers from the local military surplus shop. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm really feeling like I did read this one. This is stirring, this <laughs> well, is stirring up yeah. some stuff. It's all coming back. It's all coming back to. That's clearly what Celine Dion was talking about. She was talking about the coal people. Uh, yes, yes, she was. <laughs> it's in the lyrics. Um, this is the fifth book in the series, and it makes me wonder if they've ever tried to contact the police before, or if this is just the first time it gets addressed. Mm. Uh, I never understand why. I mean, I guess this is not overtly supernatural, but I feel like a lot of supernatural movies go out of their way to explain why nobody's calling the police. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you don't have to explain why they wouldn't call the police over a ghost. Like, I get it. <laughs> Nobody would call the police over a ghost. So Adam and Cindy get to the uh, police station. And again, I'll give this to Christopher Pike. is like He never does a scene exactly in the way you think he's going to do it. Because I think what you expect from a scene like this is they go in and the chief of police is like, what cold people from another solar system ha 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 get out of here with your crazy jokes you kids (laughs) um but what happens in this book is they go in and tell the chief of police who is uh there's a very fat phobic um habit of uh eating chocolates as he sits at his desk this big fat chief of police (laughs) naturally it is the 90s yeah, that's something I remember from Christopher Pike is he has a lot of contempt for fat characters. Uh, and the chief of police is like, well, I'm the only police officer left in all of Spooksville. And if I were to leave to help you, who would be guarding this police station? And the kids are like, well, isn't it like your, your job as the police to uh, help us? And then the police officer is like, well, here's the thing. If these creatures kill your kill this kid, his parents probably have a life insurance policy. So if I go to save this kid, I would be denying those parents all of the insurance money they'll get from his death. And who am I to do that? Oh my word! You were not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it becomes this weird like attempt at a Monty Python sketch in the middle of this book, which. It's funny because you said dry. It is an extremely dry book in a lot of ways. And then it just gives you a full on like cartoon sketch comedy scene. Right in the middle of it. By the way, is his name Chief? Uh, I can only assume. (laughs) Yeah, that's how things seem to go in Spooksville. Chief, he's like, please, Mr. Officer was my father. Call me Chief. (laughs) So then uh, we cut to... Who are they? Oh, um, I already forgot her name. Sally. <laughs> Sally and Bum. Sally and Bum head off to the Spooksville Military Surplus Shop. And uh, speaking of adults who are nothing but gigantic caricatures, we now meet Mr. Patton. Um, if you can guess, oh Mr. Patton is not his real name. <laughs> he oh, just no, I, I, I would not have guessed. It would have been in keeping with the names that everybody else in this town has that he might as well be called Mr. Patton. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, but they do make an aside to say, oh, Patton was a famous World War II general. 
Thank you, um, Spooksville. <laughs> and of course, he's when they get to the shop, he's cleaning guns, you know, like uh, cleaning and loading up a bunch of guns. He's in full military um, uniform. And as soon as they walk in, he jumps up and he's like, uh, or they tell him about this issue with the cold people thinking he won't believe them. And he's like, he's like cocking his guns, like I've been preparing all my life for this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, it is refreshing, um, again, comparing the two authors and the two series, when you think of, and it's funny, because I can't actually remember if um, it was depicted this way in the book, or if it was just the television uh, adaptation of Revenge of the Law Gnomes, the, the main character's neighbor is in the episode, the TV episode, he's like an ex-military guy, um, yeah. And, and all that you see of that, uh, the only way that it's personified is, you know, he's in fatigues um, and he blows whistles and yells a lot. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. oh, he's from the military. And Christopher Pike's like, no, this guy is cocked and loaded. <laughs> he is ready to go out and shoot some monsters. <laughs> so I appreciate yes. that dose of reality. <laughs> yeah, he's just waiting. He's been waiting for somebody to need him to come out and shoot guns. They might as well be cold people. It was going to be something. So then it turns into like a 80s action movie for a minute where the wow. kids are like loading up weapons, you know, like uh, <laughs> putting stuff on their belt and taking explosives. Um, and then the cold people approach. I'm not sure. I think they're just enveloping the entire town. I don't know if they're coming out for the kids specifically. Because this shop is on the, the edges of town, the outskirts. So I guess they're just starting from the outside and working their way in. Just like um, you do during the Food and Wine Festival. People will get I'll it. go ahead and ask. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter if I understand. <laughs> no, I, you could say, uh, if, like uh, if, Kathy if, Bates in Titanic with the silverware. <laughs> I would get that reference. Oh, okay. Well, I'll try. I'll try harder next time. If I had phrased the joke uh, in its most uh, impactful way, I would have specified, oh, just like the Food and Wine Festival at Epcot. But I didn't get that far because, mm, okay. yeah, sorry. Well, Jose, do you know how you get down from a camel? <laughs> I do now. You don't <laughs> get down from a camel. You get it from ducks, apparently, not geese. Yes, that was uh, revealed to us uh, post-episode, by the way, for those of you who've followed us from episode one. The joke that had previously mystified us uh, from Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, Goosebumps number five, how do you get down from a camel? Answer, you don't get down from a camel, you get down from a duck, is apparently referring to the feathery down that you get from fowl such as ducks. Uh, yeah, totally stumped us on the initial go around, but and I think rightly so. I think we yeah. were correct. No, terrible joke. Yeah, terrible <laughs> joke. And I, I, I associate down with geese, not ducks. So get it together, R.L. Stein. Uh, so they go outside to confront the cold people. Patton fires off with his M16. Um, but wouldn't you guess it? The bullets don't really seem to be doing any harm to these, to these creatures. Uh, too bad. All that's happening is that their blue eyes are flaring with anger. Uh, this is starting to sound really familiar. 
I, it, and it's it's one of those things where, as you describe each thing, it sounds familiar, but I still have no ability to actually forecast or you know quote unquote predict what happens next. I don't remember um, in that sense. So I'm kind of intrigued to to see how it all pans out. Yeah, I just watched um, Spanguli the other night showed War of the Gargantuas. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> I was watching that entire movie like uh, this all feels extremely familiar. And yet I don't know if I'm just thinking of another giant monster movie from Japan from the 60s that had, you know, a very similar structure. Or did I see this one specifically? Uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of like we were talking about uh, in another episode about those uh, Roger Corman Edgar Allan Poe movies, you know, mm-hmm. they just kind of blend together. It's like, did I see this one? I don't know. Our our hero Patton throws a grenade in a desperate attempt to keep from being overrun, but all that happens it it does manage to blow off the creature's arm, but no blood is spilled, and they just keep advancing. Ooh, that so they, is kind of creepy. Yeah, it was actually some of this stuff in the book is cool. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> we'll give it that. So they overrun Mr. Patton, and the kids are like, well, the kid and bum are like, uh, sorry about it, bye. And they just run back into the store. And by this time, um, Sally, I don't remember, I didn't write it down. I don't know if they already arrived, uh, Adam and Cindy, or if they're just arriving now. Um, But they go back into the store, and bum sees a bunch of military balloons is like we can rig these up like a hot air balloon basically to escape from the roof as these creatures are trying to burst their way in here so adam and cindy are left to guard the store while sally and bum go up to the roof to set these balloons up and wouldn't you know it there's a lot of dynamite lying around so they're like hmm these might come in handy later uh, and then the cold people burst in and one of them grabs adam's ankle as they flee to the roof. And he managed to, to get it away from him by shooting it in the face with a flamethrower. And it won't catch fire like a human would, but it does gradually disfigure and melt into a blue puddle. <laughs> All right, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a good way to avoid uh, being overly gory in your children's book. This is actually something, I guess you would call it a trope, um of sorts or a uh maybe a writing device or a a creative device of some kind that i do enjoy uh seeing and in the context in which it's used it's usually within the framework of a scary story uh for kids i love the workarounds that they do when it comes to violence so you have something like this where oh well they're not really people uh, they're made of ice, basically, so it's not as horrific as if you took a flamethrower to a human's face <laughs> and just saw the eyeballs melt out and, you know, the skin crisp and crinkle away and all you know, all the viscera underneath exposed. Um, oh, no, they're just popsicles, basically, that kind of melt, but it still registers a pretty gruesome effect. Um, just not on the same level. Uh, it puts me in mind of an, another of my favorites, an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? The Tale of the Dead Man's Float. Are you familiar with that one? Uh, possibly my favorite episode. Okay, so there you go. Oh, that's right. I think I remember you uh, You wrote about it um, on your blog all yeah, those years back ago. Yeah, 
dark yeah. place. Oh, yeah, that was that was one of your posts that first kind of really registered with me like oh so this is a cool person uh who likes who likes the things that i like um that was instrumental in our in our early development of our relationship but so yeah you know full well of probably what i'm alluding to but just for the sake of our listeners the tale of the dead man's float uh there's an invisible ghost the for the duration of the drama um that's lurking inside this closed off pool uh, and so the hero of the story, who is a brainy science whiz, devises of a way of, you know, exposing this ghost so that they have kind of a fighting chance to defeat it, you know, better to see it uh, than to, you know, not be able to detect where it is at any point in time. And he uses like a special chemical mixture uh, that is red in color. And when it covers the spirit, it's this gnarly looking skeleton that's got like an open rib cage and like a snaggletooth skull. And the effect that it has is that it looks like it's this dripping, gory thing that just like rose up from the slaughterhouse floor. But it's like, oh, no, it's okay, FCC. You know, this is still a a Y7 program for kids. It's not blood. It's just a chemical mixture. But when you look at it, it's like, no, that is a goddamn bloody ghost that's charging towards us right now. I love that kind of inventiveness. And I feel like sometimes when those workarounds get incorporated, the effect is almost worse than just it being like the regular gory thing do you know what i mean yeah uh it's definitely better than like in the gi joe cartoons or whatever where there's like people (laughs) shooting at other people (laughs) and just missing all the time yeah yeah exactly and uh the season five of are you afraid of the dark they really they really went for it uh because that was also when they had i think it was called the tale of the night shift maybe but that was about a vampire yeah um, murdering people in a hospital and like the makeup for that creature is like i don't think they would have gotten away with this in season one i think they just kind of went for long enough that yeah the censors that be just kind of stopped paying attention and then they were like all right let's ramp it up yeah exactly that the the makeup for the vampire is very intense and i actually wrote um an article a couple of years back listicle uh, dare i call it of um what i and we're getting totally into a whole nother subject for a whole nother episode, but it's our podcast. Leave us alone. But I call them the most memorable episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Not, you know, not the best, just the most memorable for one reason or another. And I included that one um, because of how intense it was. The fact that the attacks that the vampire made on its victims were also pretty you know, you don't see blood gushing out or anything, but they're they're still they they were actually jump scare worthy, and you know a medium uh, that so frequently has like lame jump scares for kids. Um, they it actually had good ones, but then of course there's that awesome quote at the end of the you know at the climax of the episode uh-huh. where yeah yeah the vampire is dangling the heroine of the story off the ledge of the hospital roof and he basically threatens her with i will drop you off the roof of this building and i will lick up 
whatever is left and it's like oh my god this is a y7 program um oh, yeah so good. like you, i know like you said they really went for it <laughs> yeah we're gonna have to do an are you afraid of the dark episode at some point oh god yeah, yeah um, absolutely. it's like yeah are you afraid of the dark is like what rl stein would do uh if he cared all the time you know what i mean <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, and, you know, I will say that um, DJ McHale, the creator and veritable showrunner of Are You the Afraid of the Dark, uh, he's an, art, an author in his own right these days. Um, he has made quite a few podcast appearances, so anything man. is possible, folks. Anything is possible. Man, yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, for sure. All right, the cold people. Anyway, so we've just seen somebody who face. will probably never agree to be on this show is uh, Christopher Pike. <laughs> Yeah, because back, we back to him. I don't mean to be too mean spirited toward uh Christopher Pike. I just it just really feels like he was not interested in doing anything for younger people. Um and it comes through in the books, but that doesn't mean that he was like a bad person or a terrible writer or anything. Yeah. <clears throat> let's let's uh, be clear about that. No no hard feelings, Mr. Pike. I think I left off where yeah, the yes, obviously the guy got melted. <laughs> the cold right. person. And um, but Adam makes it to the roof, but as they take off in the balloon, he notices that his ankle is going numb. <gasps> oh, this is, wow, is, this, this is giving me some, uh, Dawn of the Dead vibes, because I feel like one of the, the last few stragglers or heroes, um, from, from the original 78 movie, like, got bitten or scratched on the ankle and it's like oh no we have to leave him behind and just before when you were saying uh oh they attacked mr Patton outside the store and uh sally and bum retreated back into the store i'm like oh dawn of the dead cold people outside rampaging so interesting yeah he he name checks vampires to explain these creatures but it really is more of a zombie book hmm. uh, mr Patton is possibly dead and the characters are like, well, I guess we might as well burn down his store. So <laughs> the cold okay. people are all the cold people are all uh, inside the store, and then it catches fire due to the flamethrower action, and it explodes spectacularly because of all the explosives they didn't steal. And Adam has to think about whether or not he's going to try amputating his own leg, which awesome. is. The, yeah, the tone of this book is very weird because yeah. sometimes it is going for extremely lame jokes aimed at like, well, I guess I'm writing for six-year-olds or whatever. And then sometimes it has this incredibly grim stuff that's like characters like we better face up to the mortality of our of ourselves and our, our all, all of our families might be dead by the morning, you know? It's like yeah. it's really real in a lot of ways and then really cartoony and fake in other times. <clears throat> and I think along with all the other elements I mentioned, I, I wonder if that's also just another something uh just another thing that turned me off of the books. Like this is just so this is a tonal potpourri and I just cannot strap myself in for the dozen other entries in this series. I I, I can't I can't do this to myself. Yeah, it definitely feels like when a movie comes out that has like eight screenwriters on it and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I I don't think I'm going to be getting the most coherent movie here. 
It's like, um, we need to put a writing team together for this show. Oh, but we don't have the money for it. I have your answer. Get me Christopher Pike. Uh, here's a fun thing about movie credits, though. Um, when they use the word and in pairings, it means two people who wrote on the screenplay together. And when they use the ampersand, it means two people who wrote on the screenplay at different times. Well, really, I did not actually know what the difference was. And honestly, I would have assumed the complete opposite. Uh, yeah, it's just like a Screenwriters Guild ruling or whatever, I think. Mm, secrets of the trade. Thanks for that. Eric. And also, I might have it reversed, so I don't know. <laughs> There's always but that pretty, possibility. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the ampersand means um, they worked on different drafts at different times. Uh, but anyway... Huh. So they're drifting in the balloon, and then we get a check-in with Anne Templeton, who is the Witch of Spooksville. Uh, mm-hmm. We only get this passing reference to her, so I don't know if she's helpful or mean or evil or what. But she has a castle, and it's under siege by the cold people. She's And she has a moat with alligators in it. Um, oh my God. So they see that she has drawn up the drawbridge, so cold people are falling into the uh, water and then you see them snapping alligators in half with their bare hands (laughs) Mr. Pike (laughs) Mr. Pike can we have a word (laughs) I'm not sure what it is about the cold people that makes them super fast and super strong like what are the properties of cold wouldn't you think cold would be you know sluggish but they're really fast and really strong yeah Um, and if they're so cold like and alligators being reptiles like wouldn't they just need to hang out with them and the alligators would just be like oh i don't really feel like doing anything (laughs) for some reason i don't know why yeah i guess it could be because their their flesh is being preserved so there's no like they're not burning calories as quickly or something i don't know there could be some weird explanation uh but anywho (laughs) let's check in with our friend watch (gasps) watch is alive (laughs) once they float past this the uh castle they get to the town cemetery where they see watch wandering around looking dazed um so they land the balloon because they want to try and help him even if they don't know if he's his transformation has begun uh and he's staring at the tombstone of Madeline Templeton, who is Anne's ancestor, who I forgot to point out earlier that Bum specifically says Madeline Templeton is uh, rumored to have been one of the aliens who came from another solar system and, you know, started uh, mating on Earth with, uh, you know, whoever. The witch is an alien. Got it. Yeah. Um. And nothing really happens with this tombstone. It's not established why Watch is uh, staring at it, but it is noted that it is, quote, the end of the secret path, a portal into other dimensions. Which, again, just sort of feels like he's throwing in some other mythology from the other books, but it doesn't really seem to get any purpose here. He's just Um, throwing in a lot of mythology all over the place. (laughs) Yeah, I, there's a lot of references to other events that are just, like, done in passing that I didn't even bother writing down because I was like, this doesn't really seem to have anything to do with anything. 
<laughs> so then you get that moment, uh, the meme from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where Donald Sutherland points and screams, you know? <laughs> yeah. You get that with Watch when he sees his friends. Oh, man. And so he, he goes he on the... old person? Well, I, he seems to be in some sort of in-between state. Mm, because... So he's a chilly person. Yep. He's Joe Chill. <laughs> Isn't that a weird name for a normal guy in a comic book? That's the guy who killed Batman's parents, if you're not familiar. Oh, yes, that's right. That is right. Joe, Joe Chill. Joe Chill. Yeah, it's such Joe a weird Chill. name for just some random mugger who murdered people. But Adam tries, Adam says, look, let me try and talk him down. He's still our friend. We might be able to reverse whatever's going on. So he goes up to watch and appeals to their relationship and their many years of history together. And it seems like he sees a flash of recognition in Watch's eyes. But then it disappears and Watch <clears throat> attacks. Watch, no! <laughs> uh, Sally knocks him out with a stick. They get him into the balloon and take off right as the cold people are, you know, um, overrunning the cemetery. And another cold person gets melted, which is pretty cool. <laughs> no, I was just wondering, at any point, do they say that, we have to reset watch? <laughs> no, I think they're sort of actually worried about him. Oh. Um, and are thus not engaging in terrible puns. Oh, that never stopped anybody in a Goosebumps book, and you know it. That's 100% true. <laughs> so... The entire town of the the entire temperature of the town, as I said, is below the freezing point, presumably. And mm. some you never find out exactly what happened, but it's presumed that the cold people are doing this to make sure that they don't melt. And Adam says, I have an idea. The um oil, you know, tankers are right next to the water reservoir. So what if we drain all of the oil into the water reservoir and set it on fire with the explosives that we stole from our friend Patton, and that will heat the water in the underground streams that run all through underneath the town of um, Spooksville, and that will raise the local temperature enough to drive off the cold people. Eric. Jose. You're, this is unfair. This is not fair for you to have picked a book of this emotional magnitude so early on into our show. What what am I supposed what am I supposed to do after this point? What what can I possibly what can I possibly no, I don't know. I just I'm sure there's stuff out there that can compare or maybe perhaps even surpass the insanity that you're describing to me right now. But at this I, current point, it seems like a fruitless, fruitless <laughs> exercise. I will say, um, it's a lot more fun to recap than it is to read. <laughs> oh, yeah. Isn't that, isn't that the catch 22 of shows like this, especially mm -hmm. like, oh boy, everybody's just listening with their earbuds or, you know, their Bluetooth thingy thingies, and they're just having a ball right now, and they're like, you know what, maybe I'll give this a try. Uh, but it, that's the danger. It's like, no, let us read them for you, because it is a lot more depressing. 
when you're doing it in real time. No, it is. It's like, it's just weirdly bleak the whole time. It's not like Planet Terror or something where it's like, we understand how bonkers this is and we're going to play up to how fun and bonkers it is. It's like, this guy is really trying to tell a serious, somber story. And then there just happens to be all of this insane stuff happening. Spooksville got us feeling pretty down right now. <laughs> but Sally so, says, I like this plan. I like big fires. <laughs> so that's why I have a hard time uh, summarizing her character, because sometimes she says things like, and the weather patterns of Spooksville are not typical for this time of year. And sometimes she says, let's burn down the entire town. And then she says, I need TP for my cornholio. <laughs> like, Sally, who are you? Who are you, Sally Mackey, if that is your real name? It was Cindy Mackey. Sally Wilcox. Oh, God. Mr. Pike, okay, this is something else. Quit, especially when you have recurring characters, don't give them similar sounding names. Cindy and Sally, come on. Uh, what should uh, Cindy be called? Like cheerleader or something? No, I feel like <laughs> I I feel like, and I know we've talked in the past before about like like writing a, a a type of parody of these books before, and I feel like at this point, especially hearing how Spooksville goes, I feel like should we ever take up that adventure in the future, the characters should just have archetypes as names. Like, oh, who's that? Oh, that's Cheerleader Smith. Bookworm Alvarez. Uh, yeah. Uh oh, here um, comes Emo Jones. <laughs> Emo, <laughs> Emo Jones. I like that. Uh, okay, so they land by a local, they land their balloons in the parking lot of a local shopping center um, to steal a Jeep. The townspeople are being attacked by other townspeople who have already been uh, started their transformation. Adam figures that by sunset, the entire town will have been transformed. And um, because of the fact that there is another ticking clock here, his leg, metaphorically, gets progressively worse. It is now uh, numb up to his thighs. Or just the one thigh, I guess. It's still the one leg. Uh, Sally is going to drive the Jeep because she learned how to drive in kindergarten. But mirroring a conversation we had on an unaired episode about scenes of children driving um it turns out complicatedly this is a stick shift and so she knows how to hotwire the vehicle but doesn't know not to immediately run into a fire hydrant but fortunately this does not disable the jeep uh cindy and bum are in a i don't know if i mentioned there was two separate balloons cindy and bum are in one balloon they land at a hardware store to steal a fan to use as a rudder for their balloon uh, and then Cindy gets basically the only thing she gets to do in the entire book, which is Bum gets attacked and Cindy picks up the flamethrower and singes the cold person's hair because she actually thinks to herself, um, this is a town person. We might be able to reverse the cold personization of these people. So I don't actually want to kill this guy. I just want to scare him off. And I do have to admit at this late point that I somehow missed uh, I somehow missed when the balloons were introduced and I've just been going along with the fact that these <laughs> kids have been riding in balloons this whole time but I have not wanted to 
retrace our steps and ask, oh, how did that happen? So in that spirit, I'm just going to ask you to to carry on. Maybe the listeners heard it, but I somehow missed it. But I mean, this it must seem a lot more uh, whimsical to you than it actually it, is. Yeah, it does, actually. It seems like a grand adventure in the vein of Jules Verne. <laughs> um, yeah, funnily enough, no actual uh, hot air balloon in Around the World in 80 Days. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, that's another another one of those cultural assumptions we all make that is not true. How did um, they get? Okay, uh, I don't want I don't want to ask any more questions. But now I, my <laughs> my curiosity is genuinely peaked. Like, what the hell were they traveling around in then? But I don't want to stall the end of the cold people any more than we already have. So please just <laughs> continue. I'll oh I'll, I'll Google it later. <laughs> so Bum and Cindy go off to meet up with Sally and Adam. Uh, Adam is at the point where he's feeling cold all over now, oh, and man. he starts to have some terrible thoughts like, I resent the fact that Sally is warm, and I'd like to turn her cold like me. It must oh. mean that the transformation is taking place. So yes. Watch, who is in the back of the Jeep, wakes up and smashes through the glass, separating the trunk from the back seat. Uh, and attacks Adam. Um, but fortunately, they've arrived at the oil wells. So Sally rushes out and starts laying out the dynamite to blow up all the lines leading to the oil wells so that the oil will uh, all drain out into the reservoir. Adam um, was, I guess he was out helping her. Uh, the logistics of this all is I didn't really note it that much. Um, but he's fending off watch. He gets into the Jeep and gets it into neutral so he can roll down the hill and tell Sally, like, hey, come jump on. But he can't operate the brakes because his leg is too numb to uh, work effectively. So he just kind of leaves Sally behind. And she jumps into the reservoir to escape watch, which leaves Adam with a real dilemma because he can't light the reservoir on fire or he'll burn her alive. But she can't get out of the water because Watch is waiting on the shore. What? <laughs> Fortunately, at that moment, Bum and Cindy arrive in their uh, air in their balloon. So they swoop down and grab Sally out of the water. Adam lights the reservoir. The and then basically this all happens when there's like a page left in the book. So he lights the reservoir, and then there's basically just like a couple of sentences to be like. Uh, the cryo creatures melted. The townspeople went back to normal, including Adam's leg. And then there's an epilogue where the watch is like, hey, what brought all of those blocks of ice to Spooksville in the first place? And Bum says, that's a riddle for another day. <laughs> Meaning uh, Christopher Pike does not want to have to solve that plot point. He's past deadline already. Um, and then Watch is like, you're right. Let's all go out for ice cream. Oh, my God. See? And Sally says, hold on. I didn't write down the response, but let me see. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, Watch said, let's go get some ice cream. A silence fell over the truck. None of them thought that was a good idea. Please scream as they all laugh. And that's the end of the cold people. How did you uh, feel about it? <laughs> I feel like I know. Like like we already said, it's one of those things where 
I almost feel a temptation to read it. Well, I mean, considering what kinds of books we're talking about here, I would first have to find it. Um, and that is just much more trouble than I'm willing to expend in order to to get it into my hands. So uh, if if it happens to just arrive someday clandestinely, um, like uh, a, a copy of a Spooksville book I have on my shelf here. It's actually number four, Aliens in the Sky, uh, that fell oh, into my yeah, lap. I, also have that one. I don't I, I don't know, Eric. What can possibly be said? What can be <laughs> said that hasn't already been said? Um, I, yeah, I anybody who's interested in children's horror. Unless you're like the most completionist of Christopher Pike fans, uh, you can leave this one in the bargain bin, yeah. in my <laughs> there, opinion. There you go. Thanks for bringing it to our our, our end of the show trope there. We usually determine if uh, the book in question is something that uh, should go into the time capsule for future generations to enjoy or if we should stick it back in the bargain bin where it came from and pray that... No one may set their eyes on it again. And uh, I would say that's a fair assessment based on everything you've just said. And it's, yeah, and there are a whole lot of other Spooksville books. And I have a bunch of them. Well, not a bunch. I have like, I don't know, six of them because they just happened to be at my local uh, used bookstore when I was scouring for reading material for the podcast. And I'm, I'm like, man, I'm really not looking forward to reading these other ones. Maybe I'll make you do number four. So oh, at least thanks. I can skip that one. Yeah, and uh, here here is one thing I, I was thinking um, towards the end of your recap is that um, this seems so. This was number five. Mm -hmm. So this seems like, even though we said that uh, from what we could assume and and guess from other things we know of Christopher Pike that writing for this age range was probably not his favorite thing in the world. Um, the narrative is lively in its own way. Um, it's kind of cinematic in its uh, arc and in the directions that it takes. And, and the climax especially seems like things zhuzh up a bit to uh, the point where the book is probably at its most enjoyable. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I guess I was just thinking like, wow, this... And, and here's... Here's my problem when it comes to children's horror stories uh, written in this manner. I just think it's a difficult hat trick to pull off where you have the same kids running into repeated instances of the supernatural, especially in a series like Spooksville, where you have like dozens of entries and the kids just keep going from this monster of the week to this monster of the week to this monster of the week. It seems like this was an early enough stage, and I don't know how the rest of the series panned out, um, but in some ways I was kind of surprised by just how much action, I guess you could say, there was in the story where it reads like an isolated um, zombie epic, basically, where, you know, oh, it's this gradual invasion and people are being taken over. One of the human characters is turning in the midst of all of this they're bringing out the heavy artillery they're coming up with these grand plans to stop the threat before it consumes the entire town uh but then you turn around and it's like oh by the way we have 
20 other books in this series. <laughs> and it's just like, hmm, you know, that's just kind of like a went went for me <laughs> because it's like, it, it, the book seems like it was written as if it was all by itself. But then you realize, oh, there's a bunch more. It's like, where can you go from here, I guess, is the thing that I'm getting to. Like, you you had your cool zombie epic that would have been perfectly fine all by itself. And I'm not saying that Christopher Pike was responsible for this at all. I mean, they just said, hey, write a series like R.L. Stein's Goosebumps, and he said okay. But, you know, that's just, it seems like the trap that you fall into, especially when you're utilizing recurring characters is that it's like, oh, well, I can't make it too cool because they're going to have to come back in the next book and face another threat or deal with another problem. Um, but even if you decide to say, screw it, I am going to make it cool, you run into the same problem. So it's like, well, where can they go from here? They did that thing already. Well, Christopher Pike didn't just make it cool. He made it cold. Ice cold, baby. So our website is uh, blackmagictreehouse.com. <laughs> our email is uh, blackmagictreehousepod at gmail.com. Instagram is uh, blackmagictreehousepod. You can see the covers and illustrations of the book we talk about. And uh, what do you want to say about, uh, you know, should people feel the need to email us? What sort of material are we looking for, Jose? Well, Eric, I'm going to tell them right now, uh, assuming that they are still there, after hearing about the cold people uh when it comes to emailing us reaching out to the show we would love to hear have you yourself read the cold people did you experience something similar to what happened to me during this episode where as eric was so eloquently and beautifully relating and rehashing the story it occurred to you oh my god i think i've read this piece of crap before uh, so if you did reach out to us, let us know. We love hearing that kind of thing. Have you read any other entries from the Spooksville series? I would love to hear from somebody who's actually read the entire series um, because we'd, we'd love to know how does this pan out? Do, do these things actually connect in any way? Uh, um, and then of course, reach out to us if you just have any old memory, any old memory about weird or creepy books you read as a kid whether it was this series or something else and also if you have trouble remembering uh names titles authors of things you read in your past you just have this vivid scene that you recall reading uh, that has just stuck with you for all these years reach out to us with those because we'd love to air them during the podcast so that we can maybe put a name and a face to those uh haunted memories of yours so use the email for that like Eric said, uh, go ahead and give our Instagram a follow if you would like to see some of these dusty relics from our collection uh, in all of their wrinkled and crinkled glory. So thank you for reminding us of those, Eric. And um, do you think that you will return to Spooksville at any point in the future? Only for the show. <laughs> oh yeah well that goes without saying it would be funny though if they did like a cw series that they called springville and they took out all of the supernatural stuff and just made it like a teen soap opera with these same characters and like no connection to the books because that's my impression of riverdale is like that's a right. comic book where there's a guy called jughead and then they made like a serious teen soap opera out of it 
Yeah, get on it. Twin Peaks Light for the preteen crowd. <laughs> well, let's see. Well, we got The Midnight Club on Netflix, so anything is possible. Send in your letters to Mike Flanagan. That's that's who's doing The Midnight Club, right? Did I get that right? Uh, guy, yeah, he does all. Well, he, he does he, everything. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's becoming a cottage industry unto himself. So send in your letters to Mike Flanagan and see if he can get in on that Springville idea. There's Which, other horror storytellers out there, Hollywood. Give somebody else a chance. Seriously. I mean, in this day and age, hey, hey, it's 2023. Get with the program. <laughs> yeah, hire a different white male like me. Yes, that's what we're talking about. More diversity. <laughs> we need more diverse white males in Hollywood. Well, yeah, we, we, we need to stop before we get a, a tidal wave of hate mail. Or uh, so we somehow perjure ourselves even though we're not yeah. under oath. So thanks again for coming all the way up here to the Black Magic Treehouse. We hope to see you again. Bye-bye. So long. Don't forget your death certificate. All right. That's is, that it. A, that's is that an Obama that, reference? <laughs> yeah, that's an Obama reference. How'd you know? I, I don't I don't understand why they're what they're forgetting their death certificates for. Do you seriously not know? Death certificates? Yeah. Uh, Haunted Mansion, my... Eric. Oh. Yeah, That's what I haven't been on that ride in uh, 20 something years, probably. You're telling me that you don't have a mix of Halloween songs that you listen to and Grim Grinning Ghosts with all the fun interconnecting narration isn't included on that? That's not you? I'm afraid I have to tell you that is true. Wow. Well, I guess we can't be alike in all things. But yes. Look, I would do it. I'm not opposed to it. Well, get on that. I'll do it right okay. now. God damn it. I'm not going to wait till October. <laughs> That's right. Not even halfway to Halloween. We're doing it come now. to this fear pressure. <laughs> hey, there you go. There it is. Oh, man. All right. Have, have fun editing that episode. Oh, it's still recording.